Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice Podcast. I'm Shane Phillips. We've got two guests for this one, Professor Eva Rosen of Georgetown University and Professor Philip Garboden with the University of Hawaii. Eva and Philip are co-authors on a bundle of research articles about how landlords operate, based on more than 100 landlord interviews across four cities. As we discuss, these were fairly intensive interviews that were accompanied by eviction court visits, ride-alongs with sheriffs who were executing evictions, and following along with some landlords in their day-to-day work. This is very much a qualitative body of research with an emphasis on learning how landlords think in their own words. What they found is fascinating, and in some cases really surprising too. Each article takes on a different aspect of landlording. First is the use of repeated eviction threats and filings, but not necessarily executed evictions that actually force tenants to vacate, as a tactic for collecting rent and also simply to gain leverage over tenants. The second is about how landlords choose their tenants and the legal as well as illegal methods that they use to discriminate between applicants and find quote unquote good tenants. The third article is how landlords see themselves and their tenants in moral terms, paternalistic terms. We unfortunately run out of time before talking about that last one, but you'll pick up on that theme throughout this interview. I do want to note that we jump right into talking about evictions without ever really explaining the whole eviction process. That's partly because it varies quite a bit from place to place, which is itself a big problem for researchers interested in comparing eviction rates and outcomes in different states. But for anyone interested, we've included a general overview of how evictions work in our show notes. The Housing Voice podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies, and we receive production support from Claudia Bustamante and Olivia Arena. Send me your feedback or show ideas at shanephillips at ucla.edu, and don't forget to give us a five-star rating and review if you're a fan. With that, let's talk to Eva and Philip. Eva Rosen is associate professor at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy. She does a lot of great research on poverty and U.S. housing policy. She is no stranger to the UCLA Lewis Center, as in the very early pandemic times, we hosted her to speak about her book, The Voucher Promise, Section 8, Housing and the Fate of an American Neighborhood. It's a great book and is the winner of book awards from both the American Sociological Association and the Association of Collegiate Schools of Planning. Uh, we're also joined, I believe this is the first time we have a double guest. Uh, so this is a special episode. Second time, all- second time. Second time, okay, two for two. Uh, we're also joined by Phil Garboden. Is he, he is also an outstanding scholar on poverty and US housing policy and a frequent collaborator of EVA's. Uh, Phil is the HCRC professor in affordable housing an assistant professor at the University of Hawaii Economic Research Organization and Department of Urban and Regional Planning. He has done a lot of great work on housing, including issues of housing mobility and landlords, uh, which we will talk about today. And hello, Shane. Shane Phillips, our our, uh, illustrious host. I kick it to you. Hey there, Mike, and welcome, Philip and Eva. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. So as we always do, we will start with a tour here, or two in this case. We'll ask that you keep things brief, since uh, we got a lot to go through here, and two guests just add uh, a bunch more. Uh, But if you were giving us a tour around, say, your hometown, a place that you have lived and loved, um, and you wanted to show it off, where would you want to take us? I think we could start with Eva here. Sure. So DC is not my hometown, but it's where I currently live, and... This might be cheating, but I'll be honest, one of my favorite ways to tour a city is through a housing tour. Um, Phil actually gives a great housing tour of Baltimore, if you ever need one of those. <laughs> DC is a really interesting place when it comes to housing because it's sort of a city of extremes. So it has a lot of tenant protections, but it's also really very developer friendly. Um, and of course, it has this dual population of the typical 
Capitol Hill, Washington type who has a fair bit of money to spend and may not even live in the city full time, but then also a longstanding black middle class and working classes who have been historically sort of confined to certain areas of the city um, and are now being pushed out to areas like Prince George's County. Um, and whenever I want to show students what racial segregation looks like on a map, I show them Washington, D.C., because the black-white dividing line is just so stark. But despite these divisions, I think it's an incredibly diverse place where people really do come together from all different walks of life to try to solve problems, both through formal channels, but also informal ones. And so it's, of course, known for it's like Washington with a capital W politics. Um, but the local politics are really fascinating to watch and be a part of. And I think that's especially true when it comes to housing, which which we'll talk about a bunch today. And Philip? Yeah, um, I, my hometown is, is a, a lovely place called Framingham, Massachusetts. So it's a commuting suburb of Boston. Um, it, it exists uh, and, and continues to exist and house my mother. But uh, beyond that, I don't have much <laughs> to say about it. So I'll, uh, I'll focus on uh, the two cities I know best, which are, are Baltimore and Honolulu. Um, I moved to Honolulu a few years ago from Baltimore. And I think what's been really interesting about that transition is you have two cities that really could not be more different from a housing market perspective, right? Baltimore has 16,000 houses that nobody wants that are abandoned. Um, and in Honolulu, a, you know, a posted stamp size piece of land is worth, you know, a million dollars at this point. So, um, and yet the sort of struggles that low income and poor families face in both places are, are astoundingly similar. So it's been a really interesting lesson, a sort of personal comparative urbanism to see, um, to see the ways in which very different causes create strikingly similar outcomes um, for certain populations. I'd say the one large difference, um, and the one I think that's always very interesting to talk about in Honolulu, um, is the role that uh, Native Hawaiians play uh, in land use mm -hmm. and, and politics here. You know, in, in Baltimore, it's very easy, and I think all too easy to forget uh, the indigenous peoples of central Maryland. But here, due to a lot of historical factors, those issues are much more pressing and before I came here, I hadn't really thought much about the possibilities of sovereignty and of sovereignty movements and the ways that they make make land use even more complicated um, and certainly make the role of a, a researcher from the East Coast all the more complicated. So it's been a it's a fascinating place to, to do housing work. Yeah. And uh, I feel like if Framingham is looking for a, a new motto, it exists. <laughs> it's it <is>. a <laughs> reinforcement if there ever was one. Put that on the sign. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Framingham. It exists. <laughs> We're so we are discussing two papers in this episode. The first in the journal City and Community and authored by Eva and Philip titled Serial Filing, How Landlords Use the Threat of Eviction. The second article is in American Sociological Review and titled Racial Discrimination in Housing, How Landlords Use Algorithms and Home Visits to Screen Tenants. And this one has an additional author, Jennifer Casaleone. There is actually a third paper by Eva and Philip about landlord paternalism, which we may be able to touch on, but will at least include in the show notes in any case. The first and third papers draw from 127 interviews with a random sample of landlords and property managers in Baltimore, Dallas, and Cleveland. And the one on racial discrimination adds 30 interviews in Washington, D.C. So that's part of why we're packaging all of these together in this conversation. To summarize really quickly, the first paper looks at how landlords and property managers use the threat of eviction much more frequently than they actually evict tenants, often as a way to strengthen their position in the landlord-tenant power dynamic, and especially as a way to collect late rent. The second paper evaluates the landlord-tenant relationship at an earlier stage during the application process to move into a rental unit. It focuses on the ways that landlords discriminate between potential tenants in various ways, including by race, but also how screening methods differ between landlords with large portfolios and mom and pops who own maybe just a few units or a few dozen units. The last paper is about landlord paternalism, how landlords see their tenants and themselves in moral terms, how they use different strategies, most of them punitive, to, quote, train their tenants to become more responsible and self-reliant and in the process more profitable, ultimately, to the landlord. So that's a, a loaded topic, of course. We will kick things off with the serial eviction paper. And I think a good place to start is the distinction you make between evictions and evicting. 
Philip, starting with you, tell us what you mean by those terms and why the distinction is important for understanding the landlord-tenant dynamic, and maybe what we miss by focusing so much on evictions themselves, the point when the tenant is actually removed from their home. We've discussed the harms people can suffer from eviction in episode 12 with Elizabeth Delmel and somewhat also in episode 7 with Kristen Perkins, but I think a quick overview of what we know of the harms of both eviction and evicting would be really helpful here. Wonderful. Um, Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction that we were trying to get across the paper between the sort of moment of eviction, right, the sort of removal of a family from a home involuntarily, And what we see as, for some families, really a never-ending cycle of evicting, which has very meaningful but different impacts on uh, on their well-being. You know, when we when we wrote the article, in some ways, it was a response to a lot of eviction research. This was very early on in the in the days of eviction research, uh, which is only a few years ago. That a lot of papers were sort of conflating the two. They were sort of assuming that every filing more or less resulted in an executed eviction. And that's just fundamentally not the case. Um, And I think the literature has moved very well in the direction of really seeing them as connected, obviously, but distinct phenomenon. The city that really made it the most obvious to us, um, this sort of cyclical process, was Baltimore. So Baltimore has a somewhat unusual eviction process insofar as the first formal warning between a landlord and a tenant, which usually happens basically through a certified letter in a lot of other places, actually creates a paper trail, an administrative paper trail in Baltimore that very much creates logistical problems for the court, but allows you to sort of see a part of the eviction process that is is often invisible uh, to researchers through traditional serving means. And so I think assume the numbers have changed uh, somewhat recently with, with the chaos of the last few years. But prior to the pandemic, Baltimore was seeing about 180,000 eviction warnings happening every year. And there's only about 110,000 rental households in the city of Baltimore. So it was really clear that not every renter household was getting formally removed from a unit. And the importance of sort of taking that whole process as the thing. So, you know, in Baltimore, that there's a, you know, 180,000 warnings that then, um, 30 to 40,000 court adjudications, and then about 7,000, 8,000 families are sort of formally evicted each year, although, you know, the degree to which those result in mobility that hasn't already occurred is is still an open question. Um, And so even though that last number is still shockingly high, we felt like a lot of what's going on within the eviction world is happening in those initial stages of landlords using the threat to eviction essentially as a as a form of rent collection of forcing tenants to prioritize rental payments over other financial needs that that household might have at that uh, at a given moment yeah i would just add that that sort of interestingly in the popular uh, well as phil said i think the academic literature has moved to really make this clear distinction between um, the process of filing for eviction and the actual executed eviction itself. I think surprisingly among local politicians, certainly in the city that I know well, there's really still just a huge conflation between the filing and the actual executed evictions and like an incredible misunderstanding, therefore, if you are only considering actual evictions, um, far fewer people are affected by the process. Whereas if you take into account some of these earlier stages, whether it's the official filing, which is documented everywhere, or in the case of Baltimore, as Phil pointed out, um, the, that pre-filing notice, there's just a much larger population that, that is affected. And of course, while eviction itself has you know, all kinds of very well-researched um, effects on households like you know, kids doing less well in school or parents losing their jobs or mental health effects. I mean, the latest paper um, during during COVID, right, the big paper that, that shows that eviction was associated with a much higher death rate during COVID times, mm-hmm. right? So we know that eviction itself has all of these really tangible effects, but the emotional toll, I think, of knowing that your um, that your housing situation is unstable is, is really tremendous. And beyond the emotional toll, we know that the eviction that the filing record, right, the fact of having your name in the court database, whether or not it resulted in an eviction, is really, really bad for tenants. It results in a much more difficult process of finding housing in the future. So, um, and this is something that directly came up in our interviews with landlords and and has been sort of established in other ways since then. Um, Landlords, when they look at a tenant's residential history, they do not distinguish between a past filing versus a past eviction. It's sort of like, you know, in the criminal context, 
being uh, charged with something versus being convicted of something, as if those were the same things, right? So this is a huge problem. And then if you take a city like DC, which has a very high filing rate, it can tell us a lot, I think, about how broken the eviction system is. Um, So something like one in nine renter households in DC gets filed on every year. But uh, 95% of those filings never make it to an eviction, and 70% are dismissed by the judge outright. And most of the time, this is because the tenant has actually paid in between the time the filing was made and the time they get up in front of the judge. So as Phil pointed out, this sort of tells us that landlords are using the court as a debt collection agency, and this is not the best use of our judicial system, clogging up the cases with courts where tenants have actually paid by the time they get in front of the judge. And that allows the court less time for the more complicated cases that actually do need adjudication. So it's not until you make this distinction between evicting and eviction or between eviction filing and executed evictions that you can actually see some of these processes that are so important um, for all kinds of different policy reasons. So that's that makes me think about how different it is in the California context in some ways, right? Like, as I understand it in, in California, if you have an eviction petition filed against you, but you successfully fight off that petition or it's dismissed, your record is sealed. And therefore, you know, that that's not going to come back to haunt you as you're searching for housing uh, down the road. I mean, is it is it kind of that simple that some states have those protections, some states don't, and therefore the paper trails is is very different in that way? Yeah, what I what I will say is that I think even and I don't know exactly how it works in California, but I know that DC has been um, has recently passed a record ceiling law that in theory is supposed to do the same thing. So courses so cases that are dismissed in theory um get essentially sealed. The problem is that the way this works functionally is that landlords are not actually looking in the court databases to get this information. Mm. Most of the time, they're subscribing to software that these third-party aggregators put together. And those third-party aggregators are scraping websites constantly all day long, every day. And so if that record appears as a filing, even for five minutes in the system, maybe not five minutes, but if it's there for some chunk of time, it's going to get into that third-party database and landlords are going to be able to use it to make decisions about who to rent to. So my sense is that even in the California case, unless that record was sealed from the get-go and then unsealed, in the cases where it was dismissed, um, then we actually still have a problem. And this is exactly what I meant when I said that politicians don't quite get this distinction. They're Mm -hmm. still in many cases, I think, missing how to actually do record sealing in a way that would really um, durably protect tenants. I think your question also speaks to just how hyper-local eviction policies have been historically in this country before the last 10 years or so when folks were starting to think nationally about eviction as a, as a national crisis. States and even specific jurisdictions, specific court systems were really doing it on their own and not really communicating across bounds. And so anything that's true of eviction in California is going to look very different in Georgia, is going to look very different in Baltimore um, in ways that uh, certainly make data analysis much more complicated because even what is a filing and what shows up as a filing is going to be very different uh, between those different places. So uh, there's definitely a lot of data cleaning involved in this work. Mm -hmm. So as I said earlier, this first paper on serial eviction filing centers on the role that rent debt plays in the power dynamic between landlords and tenants and how threats of eviction are used to kind of assert that power. That leads us to another distinction that you make between the owner-renter relationship and the creditor-debtor relationship and how the relationship shifts from the former to the latter once rent debt is introduced. The owner-renter relationship is fairly symmetrical, at least in theory. Both parties have duties and responsibilities to the other. The owner has to keep the building and common areas in good repair and can't make demands of the renter not spelled out in the lease. And the renter has to pay rent on time and not damage the property or disrupt the, the common areas or the lives of their neighbors, just for a few examples there. The creditor-debtor relationship also imposes duties on both parties, but in different ways. Eva, why is the shift from owner-renter to creditor-debtor so important in your view? 
Yeah, so when tenants know that they are financially indebted to landlords, and this could be because they've had a formal eviction filing against them, or it could be just that they've talked to their landlord and they know that they're in arrears. But once they're in that situation, and especially once there's this sort of legal you know, name on that situation, um, tenants may be less likely to report problems in the home. So anything from a leaky faucet to like something much worse, like a broken HVAC system, um, they may mm. not tell the landlord or they, they may be worried about reporting that to the city for fear of being put out because they actually owe rent, right? And then from the landlord's perspective, this power that they then have allows them to defer these costly maintenance expenses because they know that the tenant might be afraid to report the problems. So this fact of indebtedness and especially the legal situation of having that eviction filing against you can really change the dynamic between the landlord and the tenant. And it does so in ways that benefit the landlord and and can compromise the tenant's housing situation. I think one of the interesting ways to think about this this question is to look at the rental context in which it doesn't occur. And so the example that comes to mind are landlords who rent to sort of young professionals in the District of Columbia, right? You know, folks who are renting not because they're low income, not because they couldn't afford to buy, but because they're transitory, right? You know, a lot of folks go in and out of D.C., work for a political candidate for a few years and, and leave. And when we talk to those landlords they're not thinking about their tenants as debtors. I mean, of course, they expect their tenants to pay rent on time, but you know, they're focused on customer service. They're focused on getting their tenants to renew their leases. They're focused on getting mm-hmm. their tenants to um, to you know tell their friends that this is a good building to live in. And, I, and I'm sure those tenants have uh, all sorts of micro complaints about the particular landlords and the particular buildings. But but broadly speaking we see much more balanced power dynamics in markets like that. But in the lower low end market, in the lower end market, you have landlords who are essentially competing with all the other needs that a low income family has and the very limited and highly volatile income they have with which to make those needs. Um, and so it's very important to landlords in those contexts to shift that relationship, to sort of try to unbalance that power dynamic through the threat of eviction, essentially, to ensure that they're getting rent income and that that's prioritized over you know the, the broad set of needs that, that families have when they don't have enough money to cover, to cover all of them. So I think it's interesting to look at those uh, negative cases um, as well. So in those, in those lower income markets, the landlords are competing for, you know, getting the rent before the tenant might have to pay utilities or for food or their car payment, those kinds of things. Yeah. Any number of needs that a family has for investments in their children, investments in their family, other things that they might need to spend money on in any given month, you know, there isn't enough to go around. And so the landlord has to make sure that they're the number one priority, uh, which Mm -hmm. is, is largely true. Anyway, you know, rent needs first, but having that debtor relationship with your landlord definitely enforces um, that dynamic. The filing can can also prompt tenants to go to their social networks or their kin networks and ask for money or to go to local charities or apply for emergency rental assistance. And so in some cases, it's not reprioritizing the expenses they have, but sort of tapping into other resources um, that they, for all kinds of reasons, might not want might not have wanted to to tap into. You know, this is maybe getting to uh, a spoiler part of the episode, but the landlords frame it quite differently a lot of the time, right? In terms of prioritization. I mean, they, I think they're also thinking about prioritization, but they're more describing their tenants as irresponsible and, you know, financially making poor choices. And, you know, I don't know if now's the time to talk about that, but you know, it, it, it strikes me that that's kind of what we're we're talking about it in one way, and the landlords talk about it in a in a much more loaded way, right? Yeah, I think that you know there are very pervasive pervasive uh, narratives around poverty in this country and, and internationally that you know people believe poor folks if they get some kind of income spend it on luxury goods, on on recreation, on on things that aren't a priority and 
my sense of literature is those those ideas don't hold up to rigorous scrutiny, right? When you look at what actual low-income folks are spending money on, it's not that they never spend any money on anything pleasant for them, uh, but that they're spending the vast majority in prioritizing rent, prioritizing food, prioritizing investments in children as the bulk of what they're spending money on. And I think we saw that during during the pandemic, right? When folks lost jobs, when renters lost jobs, they didn't immediately stop paying their rents, no. right? A lot of folks did everything they could, including, as Eva pointed out, leveraging their social networks, pulling money from where they could to make rent. And so, and so, yes, landlords very much embrace this idea of they need these things to help their tenants make sensible financial decisions. But ultimately, we see those cases as more the exception than the rule. And the rule in any rental market or any 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 housing market is, is folks doing everything they can to afford rent. Uh, and the reality is this, there is enough money to go around in some cases. Also, Mike, to your point, I think what landlords would say is, well, if a tenant is late on rent, why wouldn't I file for eviction as soon as I'm allowed to do so, knowing that they may pay and then I can just go ahead and cancel the filing? No big deal. But why would I not initiate that process immediately so that I have the best chance of getting the money that is owed to me as soon as possible? And there's definitely a logic there, right? There's a there's a strong logic there. I think the problem is that, and this is where the data is really, really helpful, um, and, and in a in a separate project looking at, at these numbers for DC, we we sort of were able to confirm a lot of our suspicions on this. Um, but what the data show, right, is that tenants are paying most of the time. Some of them are paying late. Some of them are paying late every single month. Maybe they get paid on the 15th of the month instead of the first, and they're just two weeks behind, right? And so what I say to, you know, in situations where I'm asked to <laughs> hypothetically respond to those landlords is I say, well, look, like from a policy perspective, if the issue is just that people are paying late, which is what the data shows, not that they're trying to shirk responsibility for their rent, then, you know, why not knock on their door and just check in with them before you go ahead and make that that filing now that we know how detrimental these filings are let's let's check in with people and see if there's a way to get that money before doing that official filing and then we have the added sort of positive side effect of not clogging up the courts with these basically frivolous cases mm-hmm. for for all three of these articles as i said you're you sort of have the same or overlapping sample of landlords could you tell us a little bit about the sample itself? I don't think we need to get into the methodology of how all of them are selected. We can suffice it to say that you just sought a, a diverse sample of landlords in all three or four cities. But is there any way that you would group these landlords together? Or any trends you saw, um, you know, in terms of their assets, their background, what kinds of neighborhoods they rent in, anything like that? Yeah, um, we could have a lot to say about methodology, but <laughs> at the... Uh, at the basic level, our goal was to avoid the type of sampling that gets a subset of each market, right? What we did was try to get landlords in all different market niches, all different types of neighborhoods, all different levels of assets, types of buildings, things like that, to really try to capture that full heterogeneity. We, we did explicitly undersample landlords of luxury units. We just you know, needed to spend our resources on the, on the places where the policy problems exist. And so you know, high, high, the highest end rental units are not, not, uh, not considered in our findings. Um, but generally, I think we achieved that heterogeneity really well. And, and landlords are very diverse. They're diverse in gender. They're diverse in race. They are everyone from somebody who owns a property they used to live in and moved and didn't want to sell and are sort of renting it out very informally to a large corporation that owns an 800-unit you know, rental development in, in, in someplace like Dallas. You know, We had written a lot about how different types of landlords do different, behave differently, act differently among the tenants. Really, the biggest vector that divides landlords in our in pretty much all of our studies is is professionalization right so the degree to which mm-hmm. you know you are a an individual operator who's owning and sort of managing your own units sort of doing it on your own versus a large company that has professional sometimes third party sometimes in-house management of the units and the, the differences there are just very stark. I'll give you an example from um, the screening paper that I know we'll talk about in a bit. You know, when we talk to the professional property managers of these large apartment complexes, you know, their lives are incredibly routinized and incredibly formal, um, often in ways to explicitly avoid any sort of uh, fair housing lawsuits, but, but also just in general, that's how they 
do their business. And so we had property managers talk about everyone who visits, they have to fill out a visit card. They have to monitor how they greet the tenants and the prospective tenants who walk through the door. Everything is very formal and by the book. And on, on the other side, we have landlords, even if they own, you know, 20, 30 rental properties who are just incredibly informal. You know, these are the folks who collect rental application fees and never actually file, base their opinions of whether a tenant is useful on sort of chatting with them, sort of evaluating how they look, how they act. And so we really get that strong distinction. And so most of our findings break down pretty heavily along that line. You have, you have the professional management on the one hand and um, the sort of more idiosyncratic, some people use the term mom and pop, although that always has a bit of a have a normative feel to it, uh, the smaller <laughs> sort of DIY landlords, uh, on the other hand. Among other problems, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I do want to note here just the incredible amount of effort that must have gone into this data collection. You say in the papers, you know, these are with each of these landlords, we're talking about roughly two hours per interview, ethnographic observation of a subset of these landlords in their day-to-day activities, time spent in housing courts, riding along with the sheriffs during their evictions. It just seems like this must have taken many months, if not years, to, to accumulate all this data, right? And then to, you know, clean it all up and put it all together. Uh, so kudos to you just on, on that aspect of this, in addition to everything else. Definitely took a few, a number of years, I'll say, <laughs> and yes. we're not done. That, that um, was my assumption. <laughs> but I, I just wanted to add to that when it comes to sort of thinking about different kinds of landlords and different sort of clusters of approaches, one of the interesting things we found was whether it was around professionalization or around different strategies related to eviction or approaches to engaging with the voucher program, like all of these different topics that we were engaging with, we found sort of all the types of landlords in all of the four cities, even though they're very different cities, um, they just sort of existed in different amounts <laughs> in different cities. So if we take mm. like the folks who really specialized with the voucher program, like you see the most of those guys in um, in Baltimore, where the voucher program can be very profitable for a lot of reasons that we shouldn't even get into here because it's a whole other topic. But we also see them in D.C. They're just in certain neighborhoods and certain places and certain kinds of markets. And so having the four different cities with very different political and social contexts sort of allowed us to think really carefully about how these different approaches varied. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't help but to think of some of the work that we did in Los Angeles, you know, along this distinction between, you know, more professional landlords or larger landlords and this goofy mom and pop cuddly moniker that we uh, bestow upon a very select group of landlords that always comes up when you're trying to do something uh, about landlords or render protections, but that's another conversation. And, you know, it's interesting because especially in recent years, like with really large financial or, you know, companies getting access to a lot of property, a lot of rental property, being really, really big landlords, et cetera, like that seems to be kind of the demon in a lot of these stories. And like, you know, during COVID in, in Los Angeles, like to the extent that our survey data was was good, it was, it's certainly a lot lower uh, work rate data that, than, than you all collected in, in your work. But we found that it was much, much more likely that you're going to have an eviction or other kind of negative uh, outcomes pushed against you as a renter who's late or not paying rent if it's somebody you know, if it's somebody who's like this quote unquote mom and pop, you know, if it's somebody that owns just a couple of properties or whatever. And, you know, I think that just gets to kind of, you know, what I think Phil was talking about, which is that these large institutional landlords do things very much by the book, right? And and by the book during a lot of COVID was like, you're not supposed to evict people. So they didn't, you know, threaten eviction because that was supposedly not on the table. So you know, it's just kind of interesting. I think work like yours, especially like really kind of changes the frame a little bit about, you know, not necessarily who's like a good and bad actor, but like at least adds a whole lot of nuance to, to this, this at least this dichotomy as we usually see it in politics. Yeah, that's a really important thing that I think is starting to come out in the literature more and more. You know, there's lots of good work that shows that these large corporate landlords are much more likely to file for eviction, much more likely to execute evictions, tend to be much more strict around behavior in a unit. Uh, there are, as you say, real trade-offs there, though, in terms of they also mostly follow the law, right? And if you can create a law that is followable and enforceable, they will 
implemented as part of their practices. Um, you know, all of the cases where we saw direct discrimination, for example, you know, explicit, not implicit, not in any of the complicated ways that we think about discrimination these days, uh, but direct discrimination, direct ignorance of rules around eviction, direct punitive approaches, illegal punitive approaches. Yeah, these are all in the small landlord category just because they're invisible to most of our enforcement mechanisms and they can do these things. And it's, it's, um, so there really are complicated trade offs. And that's why I try to avoid taking that sort of normative approach of these landlords are better, these landlords are worse. It's what right. do these landlords do? How does that impact tenants? What do these other types of landlords do? How do they impact tenants? And, and what can we do from a policy perspective to bring them all into ways that, you know, benefit tenants to the degree feasible? So, right. um, it's an absolutely important point you just brought up. Yeah, there's there's two things I would say. One is that if you look at this this separate study that I've been working on with with Brian McCabe um, on the on the DC eviction data, it shows really clearly that larger landlords are more likely to file, but smaller landlords, when they file, those filings are more likely to result in eviction. So mm. smaller landlords are filing less frivolously, and their and their filings are more likely to actually kick the tenant out, which which may indicate that there was a good reason to file. Um, but at the same time, to Phil's point, I think what you see with the smaller landlords is that it's it's all over the map. You've got you've got your do-gooders who grew up poor who really want to help people and provide housing for poor folks, and then you've got you've got folks who um, who are breaking law, who are doing lots of discriminatory stuff. I mean, those were those were the people who admitted to us their biases. <laughs> I, I, I admitted is not even the right word. Like they had no qualms about um, being discriminatory and sharing that with us for the most part. And I, I feel like those those do-gooders too, they get used as like a political meat shield yes. when yes. tenant protections or any kind of reform is proposed where it says, well, what you're going to do is you're going to make it impossible for these do-gooders yes. to operate in the way they've been operating, mm-hmm. ignoring the fact that the vast majority of people do not have these, you know, do-gooder landlords not even saying that they're bad, just like they're not doing more than they need to in most cases because it's a business like like any other ultimately. And and that's always been a frustration for me is is this idea that a few do-gooders means that we sh- just shouldn't regulate this market any more than we do now. For sure. I've I've heard that come up again and again in these <laughs> local political yeah. conversations and it's it's really hard to figure out where to go from there. Mm -hmm. This is maybe a good transition, but I feel like this is probably coming out as we're talking here. Landlords mostly don't come across in a very positive light in your articles. And it's not really that you're attacking them or anything. You're just kind of communicating the things they've said and that that they do. But you spend a lot of time with them. And I wonder if you developed any sympathy for their perspectives in, in one way or another. One thing that I was thinking about is how Landlords mostly seem to be acting rationally within a system that rewards a kind of heartlessness. Uh, and, and that's a system that we set up to be a kind and forgiving landlord within that context, within that policy context, might also mean being an unprofitable landlord or one who can get taken advantage of. You write in your second paper on discrimination, quote, we are not asserting that better or different landlords would result in fundamentally different outcomes. All landlords, racist or anti-racist, white or non-white, exist within a system whereby profitability and thus housing stability is inexorably linked to processes of exclusion. I'd be curious to hear either of your reflections on that quote or how you felt about the landlords you spoke to just more generally. Yes, it's a really important point. Um, And I think we both absolutely developed sympathy and fondness for the task that many landlords face. Um, you know, to me, it comes down to not basing either your social science or your public policy on sort of assessments of our landlords good or bad or behaving sort of altruistically. You know, what we have to think about is mm-hmm. incentives and systems and the sort of context they're responding to. And I think one of the places where our sympathy comes through is that, you know, the United States has really asked landlords, private landlords to do impossible things in our in our social system right we know that you know only one in four families who are eligible for some kind of housing subsidy or one in five or the numbers differ slightly but receive any kind of any any kind of subsidy right so that means the the vast majority of families who are making very low incomes are forced to find housing in a market in which it is very difficult to 
supply them housing at rates they can afford. Um, I think back to one of my first academic papers with, with Sandy Newman, where we were looking at what are the rental properties that are actually renting at low rents, unsubsidized, but low rents, not who are renting to poor people, but who are renting at low rents. And if you look at those extent data, it's really sort of a morass uh, for those things. It's, you know, weird, unstable situations, people renting to family, people who are actually renting re- rental properties at rents that low and poor and low income families can afford really aren't doing something that's sustainable, right? And they might have other reasons for doing it. And so what we're asking our landlording systems to do in this country is to take on all this responsibility that the government should really be a key partner in, uh, but for a variety of political reasons, simply isn't. And now where I think we come across as, you know, as you say, somewhat less sympathetic to landlords is that often the way to respond to this very difficult task the way that landlords do respond to this very difficult task is to implement systems of management, of screening, of eviction that are not beneficial to tenants, right? That sort of result in harms um, that tenants experience um, and often don't necessarily reflect well on landlords' ideology and perspective on, on why and how their, uh, their tenants are doing. Are doing. But in, in, in some ways, you know, these are somewhat necessary conditions for profit making in in some of these circumstances. And so I think it's really important when we talk about landlords not to engage in the sort of easy, you know, uh, social media conversation of these landlords are are misbehaving, they're doing bad things, and really think about what is the market that they're responding to, what is the problem that we're trying to solve as a society around housing everybody, and then where are their major gaps? And those gaps do mean – Tenant protections, they do mean regulation, they do mean managing the acceptable behavior of landlords in these markets, but they also mean pretty direct investment in affordable and subsidized housing in our cities. And you can't just do one and not the other, depending on what, which, which of those is more politically palatable at the moment. You really need to be engaged on, on both sides if you want this to, to work for folks. It does seem like there's, there's, a, there's an issue of competitive advantage or disadvantage where if you're trying to be the good landlord you're, you're going to kind of lose out. And maybe because of because you're buying a property f- from other people who don't want to be as good of a landlord as kind of a landlord, you're going to pay more than you would like to. And that puts you in a position where you almost can't, you know, keep the rent low or as low as you would like in those kinds of things. And unfortunately, a lot of people will take that as they'll just use that as an excuse to oppose any kind of like stronger protections and these kinds of things. But actually, it's, it, to me, it seems like that's, that's the only way this gets better because we can't just ask individual landlords to be better. We have to demand that all of them and put them all in the same playing field and, and a you know, more just playing field than the one we have right now. Exactly. I mean, if you're, if your policy goal is dependent on landlords not exercising the market power that they have to charge high rents, to evict families, any of those types of things, then, as you say, the ones who are doing that because they have altruistic goals or just you know, want to make sure they're doing right by their tenants, have histories in these communities, they're going to be sidelined by folks who are willing to make those decisions, who are going to therefore have more profitable enterprises um, mm-hmm. and so forth. And so unless you stabilize and standardize that rule that everyone needs to everyone needs to provide safe and sanitary conditions in the home everyone needs to have a very formal um, and fair eviction process yeah you're going to have a sort of a lowest common denominator problem um, around profitability so yeah absolutely if, if anything it makes it more uh, more urgent that we have strict and standardized tenant protections In the conclusion of the serial filing paper, you discuss the potential for stronger protections that do more to favor tenants over landlords in eviction proceedings. But you also make a very good point that Cleveland and Baltimore already have laws, at least in this direction, and that they don't solve the problem of landlords gaining leverage when renters become debtors and the things they can do with that leverage. I didn't interpret this at all as an argument against additional protections, and I think this conversation we just had uh, highlights that, but I'd love to hear you talk about the concern. Are there other types of reforms we should be thinking about that could maybe be more oriented toward alleviating the evicting part of the landlord-tenant relationship rather than only reducing the likelihood that tenants are ultimately evicted? 
So, um, yeah, so one of the big interventions that I think flows pretty naturally from this work is uh, in places like D.C. and Baltimore um, is raising the fee to file. So in these two places, it has until very recently been set at about $15, um, which is the lowest in the country. The average fee to file for eviction across the country is about $100. Um, They might spend more on lunch that day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although you wouldn't know it from having conversations uh, with, with folks about this who really, really have pushed back against the idea of raising the fee to file. Um, but, but, but we think this is really important when we look at these very, very high filing rates. It's just too easy to file. And, uh, and so this is one thing that we think can make a huge difference. We did make this recommendation based on the, the eviction research in DC and, um, and they have passed, um, they have changed the feed file to $100. Um, Baltimore, Maryland, just this year, I know, was also considering similar legislation. And I have to check, I do not think it passed there. There was quite a bit more opposition to it. So so that's one big thing. Um, the other big thing that, that I've looked at in other work is sort of looking at um, eviction filings for very low sums. So from our data... On, on the DC eviction project, we saw that 12% of evictions were being filed for under $600. Tenants owed under $600 and were still being taken to court. And we actually pointed this out in, in a separate report and, and the council just banned filings for under $600, which is fantastic. And and really, are you, are you feeling is, like you should have you should have given the number for under fifteen hundred dollars? We just How picked a random go? number. We picked a totally random number, and then this showed up in the legislation. We were like, um, excuse me, just a minute. We'd like to revisit that, um, but uh, I'm not sure it would have passed if it had been higher. So. It's a good start. So, and, and the eviction lab has also done some really interesting work, particularly with that number of $600, which is why we picked it. I, I think it is just a random number, though. That being said, like things like changing the fee to file, banning evictions for under $600 or whatever amount you want to pick, you know, these things don't fundamentally change the dynamics of housing affordability, They but they do keep people out of courtrooms. So I think more broadly, as Phil was talking speaking to and in what he was saying before, um, the the biggest implication of our work, I think, is the need to expand permanent supportive housing. And and certainly this is something I talked a lot about in the voucher promise. How do we do that in a way that that expands access to more people, but but also doesn't um, doesn't hurt their ability to make real choices about where they live. So following up a little bit about costs, do do landlord the landlords you talk to do they talk a lot about you know the costs of retaining counsel um, as as a big part of of what they're doing? Be, you know, and I think about some of Kyle Nelson's work. You know, who I know you're familiar with Kyle, and you've you've co-authored with Kyle. I've co-authored with Kyle. He's you know a, a doctoral student, or oh, he, he just graduated. Uh, just we yeah, just graduated <laughs> from uh, UCLA like in the last week. Congratulations to Kyle if you're listening. So he. You know, he's done a lot of work on the institutional life of eviction in the courts in not just Los Angeles, but but in California more broadly. And one of the things that I've, I've been struck by when I read his his work is like, you know, how much it costs landlords to constantly kind of go to court for, you know, the repayment of rent and like, you know, again, like... People are not always super sympathetic to landlords, but those costs end up coming from somewhere, right? And so, like, it's if it's the cost of doing business, it's going to raise rents for future tenants and, and what have you. So, how much is that part of the equation for for lawyers in the cities that you or for sorry for landlords in the cities that you talked about? I think that where we see this play out really is in the different habits of smaller and larger landlords again. Yeah. So for a landlord with a lot of properties, they're going to be retaining a lawyer. That person is going to be going to court in their stead for the most part in, in places where that's allowed. And it's going to be a pretty marginal cost for them. It's going to be part of the cost of doing business. 
Um, for a small landlord who's not encountering these problems all that often, it is going to be a significant cost. And I think that's a big reason why landlords who have fewer properties are not filing like every month, like clockwork, as soon as the tenant is late. They're only filing on the people who they actually have a suspicion are not going to end up paying. And that's why those are the folks who, uh, those are the that they have a much higher rate of um, filings making their way all the way to execution. I imagine that the the different costs for smaller landlords versus these larger, more professional landlords also plays a role in their in how they screen their tenants. And and you know, smaller landlords may be feeling a little more like they need to be more particular. So that's a good transition here for the racial discrimination paper. And in this paper, you note that in many markets, due to a variety of structural and historical factors, you often have pretty racially homogenous applicants for housing. Many of us are probably imagining landlord discrimination or racial discrimination in particular as taking the form of favoring, say, white applicants over black applicants, which, of course, does happen very often. But in many markets, landlords are selecting between different households of the same race. That doesn't mean they don't engage in discrimination. It just means that if the discrimination is occurring, it's often more complicated than the simple model we might have in our heads and not just based on race. As you put it, quote, in this context, racial discrimination exists not in the categorical favoring of one racial group over another, but in the process by which individuals within a marginalized racial group are adjudicated, end quote. Tell us a bit more about that. What are we missing when we think about racial discrimination as only operating between different racial groups and not also within them? Yes, and I always like to start the answer to this question exactly how you started the question, which is that old school racial, gender, family size discrimination absolutely still exists. It's shown by rigorous audit studies you know, by many, many groups across the country. So um, when we're trying to sort of nuance and complicate these discussions, we don't very much do not want us to therefore pretend we're moved beyond the old school version. But the reality, and I think, you know, we're building off a lot of uh, social science work here is that a lot of neighborhoods are very homogenous racially, um, to say a not surprising truth. And that, that means that oftentimes the applicant pools for particular units will also be fairly homogenous, right? I mean, we have neighborhoods that are transitioning um, in any given city at any given point, but most neighborhoods are stably white, stably black. Um, and then, you know, depending on your market niche, you might be getting primarily male or female tenants. Obviously, if you have large units, you're getting more families, you know, and so on and so forth. And so what we see in most of our data um, is not landlords who are usually making meaningful decisions between you know, say a white tenant and a black tenant, but landlords who are deciding within an all black or an all white applicant pool, which tenants are, you know, going to be most profitable, more like most likely to pay rent, you know, least likely to harm the unit and so forth. Um, and then when we talk to landlords about how they're making those decisions beyond the obvious sort of credit screening and, and income lines, what we heard a lot are ways that they're making decisions that are based in um, what we, we believe to be fairly pernicious racist narratives of the black underclass, of poor communities, of women, of so forth, right? And so the, the, the sort of criteria they're using to distinguish from one tenant to another are based on what they think is the performance of irresponsibility and that irres performance of irresponsibility is based in racial and racist narratives uh, that we have in this country. So um, an example we use in the paper is sort of ideologies around black motherhood and responsibilities around motherhood. You know, these are racist narratives as old as, as old as the United States. And what that means is that landlords in many ways will often scrutinize the mothering behavior um, of their applicants in, and these are, you know, of course, the small landlords who are doing sort of informal screening processes uh, when they're operating in low-income black neighborhoods, right? So looking at whether or not they believe the children to be clean or well-behaved is some sort of a symbol of whether or not that tenant is going to pay their rent reliably and so forth. And so is not, obviously, you're not taking race out of the equation, but you're using race in a way uh, that distinguishes within a racial group rather than between racial groups, as you know, also, also occurs. And you note that larger, more professionalized landlords tend to rely on at least superficially objective screening criteria like income and credit history, while the smaller and mom and pop types more often go off of their gut feelings uh, and use 
things like home visits and kind of more specialized questionnaires to try to get a sense for how good a tenant will be. That strikes me as, you know, another barrier for lower income or structurally marginalized populations. It's a lot less of a burden to fill out an automatic screening form than to have this invasive life evaluation by some stranger. But if you don't have a high or reliable income, or if you don't have a good credit history, you're probably not going to score well on that simple automatic screening. So you're kind of compounding disadvantages here, which isn't a, a new phenomenon in research about the lived experiences of poor people and other marginalized groups. But to take another side on this, it's probably better to have these alternative screening approaches rather than relying on just the one size fits all that doesn't suit a lot of people. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Maybe we can just start by you summarizing these two different approaches and the reasons that different types of landlords tend to prefer one or the other. And I know I've certainly got some some follow-ups and some clarifying in this as well. Yeah, sure. So first to just sort of summarize, um, you know, what we find is that all landlords are trying to find what they call the, the good tenant, right? The right tenant for their property. And this is going to depend on where it's located, what kind of properties it has, what amenities it has, and also who they think they can reasonably attract and how much they think they can get. But the things that make a tenant fundamentally good, um, paying rent on time, not causing the landlord any extra headaches, these things are not really predictable. They're, they're sort of fundamentally unobservable to the landlord at the time that they're really screening the tenant. It's just not possible Mm -hmm. to know this stuff ahead of time. So um, what do they do? Well, they rely on what we call these proxies, right? So when it comes to the smaller landlords, as you said, they're relying on what they call gut checks, which are these sort of informal judgments that they make about how um, tenants look, how they talk, how they present themselves. And this is, of course, when these stereotypes that Phil was talking about stereotypes that are really at the intersection of, um, in the case of many of our tenants, poverty and and black motherhood. They draw on these stereotypes. They do home visits to see how tenants are keeping their homes. They smell the tenants' kids. They check to see how neatly their hair is combed. Um, Really some some quite invasive and insidious stuff. Um, I I did want to say too, like as as a white man, I I was kind of shocked to read this. I don't know. I shouldn't have been, but like, I certainly have never had a home visit, you know, in a place in advance of renting a place that was never proposed to me. Yeah, it it was fairly common among a subset of our landlords, and it, it sort of varied by city. Mm-hmm. I think I think it was Baltimore and Cleveland where it was the most common, if I'm not wrong, Phil. And then, so then you have larger landlords. On the other hand, they're going to be using these formal methods. They're often really trying, um, as we mentioned, to kind of systemize, systematize and routinize their procedures so that they can protect themselves from fair housing lawsuits because they're much more likely to actually be like audited by a fair housing check. Um, and so they're relying on things that we think of as fairly standard, like credit checks, criminal background checks, um, residential history checks. And that's where that eviction history of eviction or eviction filing comes in. And this may seem better. I think in a lot of ways, it's quite a bit better. But the issue here is that these things too are not particularly good predictors of paying rent on time. Even credit checks are not particularly good at predicting someone's ability to pay rent. And on top of that, they tend to correlate with categories of historical inequality. So when we rely on formal algorithms that rely on these metrics to screen tenants, not we, but landlords are actually sort of just reproducing these same patterns that that sort of created the data feeding into this algorithm in the first place. Something that came to mind as I was reading this was the need to establish alternative fairer systems and not simply, you know, if we don't like the home visits or the more kind of gut check approach, we can't just say like, we're going to get rid of that. And because then everyone is just left with this formal screening process that's going to disadvantage people. And maybe it's actually better at least than than that alternative to at least have that other option, which they might score a little better on and they can make a personal appeal. You know, I think about when I was younger, I had to use a payday lender several times. And while I 100% understand the arguments against them, I think I'd have been worse off had that option not existed for me at the time, if, the, if, if nothing else had, had taken its place. Um, when it comes to housing, you know, we banned a lot of the more affordable housing typologies in the past, boarding houses, single room occupancy hotels. 
to say nothing of just, you know, multifamily housing generally in many places. But we didn't do much to make more socially desirable housing actually accessible to the people who lost those other more affordable options. So, I mean, do you have a sense for what you'd like to see in place of these existing screening methods? I found the paper super valuable and, and illuminating, but it kind of left me feeling like no screening method is going to fix these problems that are ultimately much bigger and, and more systemic. Yeah, we, we really grappled with this question too, and especially at the urging of the reviewers, like you, you got to give us something else. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, ultimately, you know, we think that it would be better to eliminate screening techniques that seem to serve no other function than as stand-ins for race, gender, class, right? So things like home visits and smell tests, these are definitely obviously not measuring attendance ability to pay. Credit scores too are really just this crude proxy for poverty and racialized exclusion from credit and home mortgages um, and algorithms when they are used. We think this is where there's a little bit of room for movement. You can use an algorithm if it's predominantly relying on, say, income or a uh, voucher receipt in the place of income, right? Like, are you getting a paycheck that allows you to pay rent? Yes. Okay. Then you qualify, right? That we think is a much more immediate proxy for whether or not the tenant's going to be able to pay than whether or not once in the past they weren't able to pay their credit bill or whether or not once in the past they had an eviction filing that never went through, right? And, you know, when it comes to these sort of more discriminatory practices, I think there's a whole conversation to have around how to hold landlords to account. And we think that that is incredibly important. But at the same time, we're also sort of pointing to a larger problem, right, which is that rental assistance for low income families in this country just is not sufficient to meet the demand. And we have all these private landlords who are, you know, in many ways trying to meet that demand, but not always doing it very well um, and and in the process sort of attempting to mitigate their own risk by using these um, often racist, sexist, otherwise discriminatory screening tools to judge tenants' worth. So this is obviously something we can work on making better, but ultimately we, we do sort of want to shift the conversation from what's the best screening tool, um, which is always going to exclude the people at the bottom, whoever they are and whatever their traits are. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it can be done in more fair or less fair ways, but there's always going to be winners and losers, right? And, and sort of shifting the conversation to figuring out, okay, how do we actually make sure that everyone who needs housing has it? Um, and, and so we didn't want to sort of leave readers without that, that central takeaway. Yeah, I think the reason it seems in some ways a little hopeless is is where really the question we're trying to ask is how do you screen tenants into housing they can't afford, right? And that's impossible because they can't afford it. And therefore, uh, they're going to present potentially challenges to profitability on, on the landlord side. Um, and, you know, it's easy to sort of punt to the labor market uh, as housing researchers to say, oh, this is something that the labor folks need to solve. But income volatility in the low end labor market is a is a is a key piece of this story that we don't want to neglect. Um, and I think you know the system we have now, as you pointed out, is that folks who do well on paper tend to pursue formal landlords. People who don't do well on paper but can do well in a sort of a performative sense go for small mom and pops. And we see in other uh, interview studies with voucher tenants that people are very explicitly taking these techniques and are very aware of what they need to do to to sort of get through to um, find at least one landlord who's willing to take them in a, in a metropolitan region. But with, without dealing with the, the fundamental income problem, um, we're going to have a substantial subset of the population that's going to keep struggling no matter how they're screened. And I think we know from other discrimination literature that when you take away tools that whether it's employers or landlords use to screen tenants, that you have to be really careful about what fills that void, right? And what fills that void is not always, you know, equality or it's it's oftentimes other even more um, deleterious techniques that even more disadvantaged women or people of color or large families and, and so forth. Um, and so just the continued whack-a-mole of, well, you can't screen on this, you can't screen on this, you can't screen on this. While in some of the cases that Eva pointed out, some of those things we think are probably good ideas to, to remove from the equation when they really aren't serving a, a fundamental business process. You know, ultimately, you, if you take away everything, you have to be very careful about what comes in and, and, and fills that gap. And so, you know, to state the sort of boring thing again, right? Income support, you know, rental housing subsidies, vouchers, and what have you, 
have to be a part of this conversation as well. I think that focus on the the upstream, the structural, the more systemic factors is a good place for us to end here. But uh, I I hear that you have a book project coming up. Do you want to tell us about that before we let you go? Uh, Yeah, sure. Um, So uh, Eve and I are currently working on a book called American Landlord. Uh, It's forthcoming with Princeton University Press. We'll be writing it over the next year or so. And it's our really goal to think, you know, we've written a, a series of papers that you've so generously queried us about during this podcast. And it's an opportunity to think very holistically about the low-end rental market as a space and the role that landlords play within it. And a lot of the questions that we've talked about today around how do you separate these individual behaviors from the structural processes that incentivize those behaviors uh, and how you create a low-end market that's actually supportive of the obvious point that everybody needs to be housed by someone somewhere is our, our goal for the book. So we're excited to be able to sort of take a step back from these focuses on discrimination, of screening, of management, of eviction, and really think think big about these questions. Philip Garboden and Eva Rosen, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having us. This was a really fun discussion. Yeah, thank you. I feel like we could have talked for, for uh, many more hours, but this was, this was terrific. Thank you. We certainly could. Thank you. You can read more about Eva and Philip's research and find a whole mess of show notes and a transcript of the interview at our website, lewis.ucla.edu. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips, and Mike is there at MC underscore Lens. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.